Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I hope that you're all doing well and doing your best to stave off the boredom during the winter break as best as you can before F1 gets going again. Very, very soon. It does come very, very quickly. But in the meantime, whilst we're in the off season, I'm very delighted to have with us a brilliant guest that we had last time when we did this episode. And in terms of F1 tech, what this man doesn't know isn't really worth knowing about F1, but we're delighted to announce that we're joined once again by F1 tech pundit and journalist, Mr. Craig Scarborough, Scarbs F1 to mere mortals like you and me. But first of all, Scarbs, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well, uh, enjoying uh, a brief break, as you say, between the end of the season and the start of the launch season, which is literally just a matter of weeks away. So yeah, all good and glad to be back on. Uh, I can't yeah. believe it's actually been quite so long. <laughs> it has been. Well, obviously, you and I have both been busy with what we've been doing, but it's always great to have you on to talk and, and reflect on the season that we've just had and perhaps what some of us can look forward to in the years to come. There's been a lot of chatter going around of late over the proposed F1 regs for 2026. And of course, there has been a lot of chatter going on regarding the current regulations, which we are enjoying at this point in time. But before we get into the meat of all of that, how have you been able to stave off the boredom during the winter break? I've been following your social media feed and you've been quite active and a few uh, interesting pieces I'm seeing, particularly today, that have been quite amusing. So uh, what have you been up to, Scarps? Um, I've, I, I always find something to, to, to talk about or, or do on social media. Every day I look, I go, kind of my archive reminds me what happened on this day, you know, anything up to, what, 25 years ago now uh, since I started doing this. Um and I, I, one of the things I was going to do in the off season was actually dry, draw all the drivers' helmets in black and white without any sponsor names on and see if anyone could recognise them. Um, and then I decided I really couldn't be asked to be quite that busy. So I just drew all the drivers' faces and done a kind of elf on the shelf with each of the drivers' names. So I think we've had a few today already. Um, trying to think which ones I've put out now. <laughs> um, I'm just going through the social media yeah. feed. It's seen uh, what we've got. Fernando's on a Nando's, I think, was the first one. <laughs> um, I yeah. also cheated by putting Bottas because I couldn't find anything that rhymed with either Valtteri or Bottas. If anyone's got any ideas, please send them in. <laughs> um, Probably so, R-rated ones, I'd imagine, given what his social media feed is looking like of late. Uh, yes, I mean, I've only drawn the driver's faces. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
most leave the rest of the imagination. Most people, <laughs> most people probably forget what Bottas's face looks like. He's got so many pictures of other parts of his anatomy. But uh, yes, but yeah, there's yeah. Uh, uh, you know, even this morning, I've had um, some F1 parts arrive through the post that I can put on my workbench and take pictures of. There's always something to talk about, uh, even if there's not racing going on. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's plenty of news going on. But of course, guys, if you want to check out Scarbs' social media feed and what he's been up to in the winter break, then uh, follow me on Scarbs Tech on Twitter. Some great stuff on there. And yeah, Russell One and Muscle was a, was a pretty good one as well. Signs <laughs> yeah. on the pint. So very Christmas party themed. I'm liking that. So uh, lots yeah, of, lots of food in these, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out and see if a, a Bottas one turns up. We'll have to see what you... Uh, where your mind wanders with that one but uh, no great stuff as always scarbs but uh, in terms of the f1 season as a whole reviewing 2023 there's been a lot of feedback different opinions from different sections of the f1 fan base and media alike what do you what were your thoughts on the 2023 season um i mean i've kind of got two opinions really uh you know one has my, my personal interest in the technical side and i think it was a fascinating season um, oddly, I thought it'd be slightly less so than last year because last year we had so many different concepts. Uh, this year, everyone's kind of started to converge on one, but still, that the level of development between the teams has been fascinating. I've really enjoyed that. And then, as an F1 fan, as I guess you know, most people are, um, I really enjoyed the season. Now, uh, we were talking before, and I can understand that a lot of people thought this was a really boring season. They felt that the, you know, there was uh, you know, almost unprecedented dominance by obviously, Verstappen in the Red Bull. Uh, and I can understand that. But I thought there was so much else going on. Uh, I mean, qualifying was a battle every race. Now, Max did win out quite a bit in those, but it was a battle. He wasn't clearing off by a second in qualifying. So there was always a question. It was always that last lap, that last sector. And then the races, you know, OK, Max won a ridiculous amount of races, but who was following him? And let's face it, the TV cameras didn't focus too much on Max. And if you're only there to see who wins, then it probably was a boring season. But, you know, was it the Ferraris? Was it the McLarens, the, the Mercedes, you know, Alpines? Even Aston, you remember when Aston Martin were quick at the beginning of the season? It was fascinating. And that's ebbed and flowed through the year. And I think the final championship positions probably reflect quite well everyone's overall level of competitiveness and so I've really enjoyed this season and I'm kind of looking forward to next year as well now yeah I agree with you I think not to gatekeep but I do feel that a lot of the the negative opinions on this season in terms of the the competitiveness whilst understandable a lot of it a lot of it probably comes from more casual fans that are hoping to see a more exciting battle um, but at, at the same time, whilst it's an understandable point, you do have to look at the nuance behind what has been going on. I mean, as you as we talked about before we went on air, you mentioned that, you know, whilst Max Verstappen had been dominating in races where he was in a different postcode to everybody else, we didn't see a lot of him on the television broadcast. We saw mm. the battle behind that. And in a weird way, whilst you have to use your imagination to take Max Verstappen out of the equation, if you focus purely on the action on track, I don't think most people, forgetting the result, would argue that it's been a boring season in that regard. Mm. Yeah, we've seen good racing. You know, lots of drivers, you know, admittedly with, you know, different tyre strategies and with DRS, lots, but there was lots of overtaking this year. And I think that was partly because different teams had different approaches between qualifying and the race, um, particularly if you contrast like Ferrari and Mercedes. Uh, their stories often switched for some reason during the race. Um, and equally, there was, you know, cars are still able. I mean, I think 
the regulations do need to go another step further again, but the ability of cars to follow each other and make manoeuvres. And we've seen some you know, great overtakes uh, on a range of different circuits. So, you know, I think Formula One is in a really good position at the moment in terms of, you know, the, the technology for uh, providing us with good racing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it was a bold commitment that they made for the 2022 regulations. And, you know, last year was pretty good in that regard. Um, of course, it wasn't perfect. But it could always be improved. But I think despite there being some fears that this would slowly deteriorate back to where we were in 2021 before we get to 2026 again, even though the metrics from the drivers and teams suggest that it is getting harder to follow and harder to overtake, the numbers for overtakes were still quite astounding. I mean, if we look at them, and I don't think F1 or crypto, whoever it is that publishes the actual figures for the overtakes, I think most people's calculations would suggest that they have been more than in 2022. Now, I know by and large that was offset heavily by what we saw at Zandvoort, which was a world record for overtakes mm. because of how crazy that race was in particular. But even yeah. if you take that out and average it, it was in the similar ballpark to 2022, even if yeah. the average was a little bit lower. So... In that regard, Scarves, I suppose, despite the difficulties in following other cars increasing year on year until we get to 2026, which is understandable, given that teams are getting better at exploiting these aero loopholes in the regulations, mm. the racing overall by the numbers has still been pretty good in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it's both statistically and I think, you know, I think overtaking, you can look at the numbers and they, they can be kind of played with because there was obviously odd sprint races, lots of wet uh, interrupted uh, weekends but actually when you look at it more anecdotally and you remember some of those moves and you think yeah yeah this has been a season where we've seen battles um and uh, i think we haven't had that for quite a while it's always been a case that someone catches up drs overtakes and disappears off we're actually seeing a lot of people having several laps of attempts and passing and repassing almost like a kind of moto gp setup um, which you know, I don't recall for a while. So, uh, you know, again, I think you can look at it in in uh, metric terms or in just emotional terms. I think that I think generally, I think that's ended up quite good. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, before we get the uh, the usual suspects coming at us saying, why are you guys trying to make a real positive spin on this season rather than talk about what happened at the front? I think we should address the Max Verstappen uh, elephant <laughs> in the room. Um, obviously, from an aero perspective, we can talk about Perez's difficulties with this Red Bull and perhaps why that gave us a little bit of confidence that perhaps this Red Bull may be not as formidable as we may have feared on its own as an entity. But in terms of Max Verstappen's season by the numbers, uh, what was it, 21 race victories out of, well, for Red Bull, of course, 19 for Max in particular. Um, you know, so many pole positions, over a thousand laps led by Max Verstappen. By the numbers, it's probably arguably the most dominant F1 season we've ever seen. How much of that, should we be pay, give, uh, giving Max Verstappen credit for, rather than just saying it's all about the Red Bull being dominant? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, I think to answer that, you've really kind of got to look at Perez first, haven't you? Um, and uh, with with all due respect to, to, to Sergio, and I, I have been a fan of him, his, and the way he races in particular, you know, the kind of tyre whisperer um, analogy, um, I think you know, he's a good driver, but I don't think he is that, you know, alpha, you know, multiple world champion level driver. You know, I think we I think we can all be kind of honest to say he's not really in that category. Um, and then he has a particular way he likes to go racing. And I think he tried to abandon that early in the season and go and chase Max on pace, which was never going to happen. Um, 
The car's tricky to drive, so it means that he was having all these sort of silly offs, particularly early in the weekend. Um, and I think in qualifying, if I can remember as well, I'm not I'm not great at remembering individual driving performances over what is it, a 22 races or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, I think he lost his head a bit. He had a difficult car, um, and then you can then look at the flip side. Well, yeah, clearly that car was in the round, the best car out there. Um, you know, but it was tricky to drive. Max could cope with that trickiness, and Max largely kept his head all season. And, you know, that's not something we can ever have said through Max's earlier career. In fact, I actually remember watching um, the last couple of races when he was sort of under pressure a few times, and you kind of saw the old Max chopping around and being on the limit of what's, you know, acceptable driving. Um, But for the most of the season, he was able to drive, you know, flat out, but within himself. And as a result, I think Max maximised... Excuse the pun. Um, what was available? <laughs> what was available in that Red Bull, which was um, you know, a car that was quick in qualifying, very good on its tyres in the race, um, ultimately quite reliable. Um, so just everything came together. Um, now there is this question: Is that was that the most dominant performance ever? Um, and I've been following this sport for far too long because of my my uh, elderly years now. And I don't think it was dominant in, again, the anecdotal sense rather than the metric sense. You know, clearly the numbers, partly because it was such a long season, really added up and he didn't get that competition from his teammate that perhaps he should have. But, you know, I can remember periods of dominance under Schumacher uh, and Vettel and every you know, whenever anyone was on a run. Um, and you would, you know, you'd see people out-qualify everyone by easily by a second. You would see them run away in the race and lap everyone up to the podium. Well, we didn't see that this year. So I don't want to overstate how fantastic that Red Bull was. Um, and then when you do look at the Red Bull, again, you then have to look at its competition. And Ferrari clearly chose the wrong car concept. And their car was way too balanced uh, on its tyres in favour of qualifying over the race. And, you know, I think that's borne out by the, the the figures as well as what we saw, particularly with Charles. Mercedes, again, dropped the ball massively with the car concept and never wholly recovered. But their tyre management in the races really brought them the results that they got at the end of the year. Aston Martin made that big step, but fell back through the year. McLaren did the opposite. So, you know, you've got to look at all of their competitors and say, well, each of them failed you know, at some point during the season, either the winter development or the in-season development, in the case of Aston Martin. So Red Bull were really given something of an easy easy ride. If you know, any of those competitors had got even half right at the point they should have, I think it would have been a very different looking season. And I think the way that Max was able to drive, the way that Red Bull were able to set the car up, because when you know you're the fastest car out there, you can play with your race setup. You can run that bigger rear wing to look after the tyres. You've then got a DRS advantage, which we saw so often with the Red Bull. Lots of things then start to multiply and compound upon your initial performance to make you look like you're so much better. And that's why over these, you know, past couple of decades, we've had these big, long periods of you know, big domination by one car or one driver in the sport. Um, I think hopefully next year, everyone will get things slightly a little bit more 
uh, accurate um, and then the start of the season we should start immediately with a bit more competitiveness but um, I think I don't think you can split Max and the Red Bull this year I think both of them got everything right and it was you know those two entities working as best as they can to get those results and you know Sergio wasn't able to get the best out of it and that's where we see the result by the time we reach the end of Abu Dhabi. Yeah I think that's very fair and you know Red Bull will always come out to argue the case where people will say, should they be setting the car up more in tune to what Checo wants versus more what Max wants? And there, we saw plenty of times throughout the season. I think Monza was a great example where both Perez and Max ended up going through different setup phases. I think Checo was using less downforce on his setup uh, going into the race mm. beforehand. Max was going the other way, putting more downforce. And what they found was that Max was in a position where... He would be fine, providing he was leading the race and Checo looked more competitive. But as the weekend went on, mm. it became more and more apparent that Max was Max's setup was the better of the two. So, yeah. you know, sometimes it, it can be factors like that, like simple as just which preference on setup the driver will go for that will make the difference. And I think we saw throughout this season that, you know, Checo is a very capable driver. We shouldn't distinguish th- uh, that from the fact that he... You know, even though he came second this season, he was in a different league to his teammate who was just in a different league to everybody else. But at the same time, the checker we saw earlier this season looked like he was on it. And then after Miami, it just completely fell away. As you pointed out, he probably lost his head. So I think you're right. You know, we shouldn't take anything away from what Max achieved, but it certainly shouldn't take away from what Red Bull produced as a car, even if it could be quite complicated to drive. But of course, that takes the best drivers to get the most out of it. That's the nature of Formula One. Yeah, yeah, I think there's there's a myth as well that I know a lot of people pick up on this argument that they should have developed the car to suit, suit Sergio. Um, the myth is that the teams develop a car around a driver. The teams don't. Uh, the teams' simulations and the metrics that they're aiming for in terms of the targets for downforce and sensitivity and all of these sort of factors, the drivers don't come into the, the, fact, the, the case in this. The teams develop the fastest car around a lap. Uh, so in theory, the car that they deliver with its initial setup at a circuit should be the fastest possible. Now, the drivers will want certain different uh, setups to suit the way they drive. And what they're eff- effectively doing is subtracting from that perfect car to get the most that they can out of the car. Now, Max can drive with a slightly unstable car. Sergio really can't. And that, again, affects the amount of downforce that they like. Um, and affects where you end up qualifying and therefore also affects what you do in the race. For Max, again, all of these things work together. With Sergio, they didn't. So it's not a case that this Red Bull is a Verstappen-designed Red Bull. That's just, you know, it's a complete fallacy. It's not how teams go about designing things or else you'd end up with a slower car than potentially you could have. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's just the way the car turned out and how those drivers cope with it, with their individual setups that really tipped the balance this year. Yeah, I think that's probably a a myth that, and I think that's an important word, a myth in this regard, that was kind of born from the early 2000s where we knew there was that holy trinity at Ferrari with Schumacher, Jean Todd and Ross Braun, and it worked perfectly uh, as a team, you know, which helped Ferrari dominate for as long as it did. And, and, And that theory was very similar, that no matter which driver was driving in that Ferrari alongside Schumacher, you'd have to drive the car that was set up to the way Michael wanted it and just be the the perfect number two. And then that went on to being uh, Red Bull with Vettel, saying Mark Webber had to play second fiddle to him. And then obviously the Hamilton dominant years where Bottas probably had to do the same thing to him. 
all miss in that regard because whilst mm. it makes a lot of sense to back your best horse, no pun intended, of course, far as Ferrari mm. are concerned, but um, you know, you're not going to get much benefit if your number two is literally at the back of the field and your lead driver is at the front, unless you have a yeah. season like what Red Bull had, for example, where it didn't matter mm. what Perez did, Max won both championships single handedly yeah. in, in that regard. But um, obviously, you know, in regards to the Perez situation going forward, in terms of the complications in getting the most out of this car in which we saw Max Verstappen able to achieve. I often wonder if we are seeing in terms of the current crop of drivers at the moment, Scarbs, where the younger generation of drivers with a few notable exceptions like Hamilton and Alonso, for example, that are very much a break the mold in, in this concept that because of this new generation of drivers where they all love their sim racing, there's a natural feel about some of the elite ones like Verstappen, Leclerc's another one, although that one is still with some work to do. Norris, I think, is probably a better example. But the sim drivers that are able to work, put the extra hours in at home rather than just on the sim, um, to work around what a car needs and get the most out of it. And the reason I bring up Norris, because we saw at McLaren how it didn't work out for Ricardo, for example. And that's not to say that Ricardo's not a great driver. He is. But Ricardo never really had that natural feel and I feel that Perez doesn't have that natural feel either to drive around a car's issues do you feel that that's something that we need to see more of from some of the with all respect lesser talented naturally talented drivers on the grid to work around well I guess what I'm trying to say here is do some of the other drivers that are struggling with a car's issues need to put a few more hours in on the sim at home to try and get around it or do you think it's just a case of the the natural talent will shine through uh, it's it's difficult. I mean, I think it's quite easy to kind of um, label drivers as lazy or not lazy, uh, depending on, you know, how much they do. And I mean, I think you, you could take it to the extreme and sort of look at Hamilton, you know, doesn't do track walks, doesn't do sim. I, I guess he doesn't do much e-racing, e although I don't know. He's probably done more sim work in the last year or two whilst Mercedes yeah. have struggled than he probably has done combined for Mercedes when they were dominating. Yeah, not one of those dominant years yet. So you could call you know, Hamilton a lazy driver, and that, you know, that clearly isn't the case. But different drivers react in slightly different ways. Some of them, um, you know, a lot of the drivers will go, go, go do karting. And I know Alonso and you know, Schumacher were one of those sort of drivers that uh, did that a lot. Every driver has their own mechanism. Some drivers will have, you know, driver coaches. Uh, there are some of the drivers which you may think are a bit further down the skiddle ladder uh, that use people, uh, you know, like Rob Wilson, uh, understanding what makes up a corner, understand what their driving style is, understand what these cars need. And then there are some drivers that just have kind of one way of, handling a car and when the tires which are the main reason that these cars are quite tricky to work with at the moment it's the way that the uh, the front and rear tires kind of give up through a corner they yeah you know, they can't adapt and i think that was really was one of the big issues that in particular ricardo had and uh magnus has spoken a lot about it this year as well he's had to change his natural driving style and if you are a natural driver because you have both natural drivers and then the other extreme is the technical driver you know you kind of explain where they can you know kind of a schumacher can look at the data can practice and can change the way they drive and you know, it's just different stories for different drivers and unfortunately um sometimes the way that the cars are working go against certain drivers and suddenly someone like ricardo can look you know like second rate we know that he's not and equally sometimes the way the cars work can you know flatter a driver and I suppose you would say that 
you know, Vettel's uh, championships under Red Bull were very much down to the way that he worked with that car and with the, the exhaust blown diffusers and the how the engine mapping was all working. And you know, it, then he was you know outshining uh, Weber when I think perhaps maybe on natural talent or you know just raw talent they were probably quite equal, but somehow something skews these, and that's you know, that's just the way you know it's not a meritocracy formula one. You've got to have you know everything falling in place for you. You can't just be a great driver, which sounds odd to say, but you know it's a motorsport. It's not just people sprinting a hundred meters. It's down to lots of other factors. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think I should clarify for some people listening is thinking I'm just throwing some drivers under the bus here and probably aren't delivering these current regulations. But you see some of the naturally gifted drivers and those with that feel and some of the young drivers that are, as I said, I'm not suggesting that they're working harder, but I think Crofty pointed it out on the Sky Sports F1 podcast when they were talking about Max and Checo that, you know, every time you see Max, he's always doing sim racing or he's, and it's not even F1 sim racing. It could be GT cars or karting and other things like this. And that you see Checo, you don't see half of that on his social media feeds. And that's not me suggesting he's not doing it. But if you're trying to look for those extra bits to make you faster, understand this car better, maybe that's what you need to be doing. And this is the sort of thing that we saw Schumacher was doing for years, long before any of the other drivers really got wind of this. And Fernando still does it now at, you know, the youthful age in his early 40s. And I'm sure Hamilton does this when he has his spare time as well. So it's not always just about the natural talent. Um, And maybe some of the other drivers have got wind of this now and have started doing it to the point where, you know, they've got to protect themselves from the younger drivers coming through because they're all going to be doing this. So uh, maybe that's the way forward with these current cars, just understanding them a bit better. you know, because obviously from different areas, drivers that do well in previous set of regulations aren't guaranteed to be that way in the next one. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so moving on to uh, a different topic of discussion in regards to the aero stuff, Scarves. Um, obviously, when we sat last year to talk about this, we were looking at the regulations from how they fared in 2022. Ross Braun at the time when he was at the helm at F1 was quite boastful about how much effort F1 had put into these regulations with the FIA and that a lot of loopholes that they claimed were cropping up during the inception period and the investigation period was being closed off. As it seems, uh, a lot of the teams are still finding new ways to exploit loopholes in the regulations. Whether the FIA allow them to stand on the cars or they ask them to remove them altogether is is a different matter of discussion. But are you surprised at how good the teams have been at finding loopholes in these regulations? Because um, a lot of fans have started picking up on this and it is quite a little bit worrying. Yes. Um, yeah, I am worried. Um, now, it doesn't surprise me that the teams have found these loopholes um, because, you know, they've got hundreds of people literally looking at every word of the regulations and, you know, being very cynical about how they're written. Um, and that's been the case forever. You know, that's that is that's part of the interest of Formula One. I think for me, what's more worrying is as we go into 2024, there are no technical regulations to outlaw some of the uh, clever little aero tweaks, particularly around the front wing, rear wing, brake ducts, which are the areas where you get the most freedom. Uh, mirrors, arguably, as well. Um, there's been no regulations to kind of prevent these this year. And I think that's wrong. I mean, they did last year. They haven't done it this year. Um and I think if you don't chase the teams with regulation changes, then 
all the hard work that you've done previously starts to slowly undo itself as we were sort of speaking at the uh, the opening of the uh, the podcast here so yeah i i think it does it is something that needs to be addressed and we've still got um 24 and 25 under these current aero regulations so i do think that there is you know some mileage in chasing um these regulations um i think generally as a package they are about right um and they seem to be doing you know the job that we were looking for so i just think it's just a case of some small tweaks um and this isn't you know uh undermining teams innovation they've had a season with some of these things we know that we don't want these cars creating t- dirty wake uh, because it reduces overtaking um so yeah so i think it's you know it is right that we, we play around with some of these things um uh, uh yeah for whatever reason the f1 fi have decided not to so uh, i'm a little bit confused by that but uh that's a shame yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the teams do, given that they have that apparent freedom with those parts of the regulations. I suppose, anecdotally speaking, just to throw it out there, should we be expecting some of the teams to go out with some crazy new wings, like what we saw, what was it, in the late 90s? We saw those uh, extra wings on the front of the cars. Maybe we'll get some attached to the halos. I remember Jordan, uh, Ferrari, Arrows and Stewart, yeah. just to name a few that were really experimental on those. I think the way the regulations have been set up now, as much as I would love to see some of these ridiculous things that we've seen over the years, there just isn't space. So the work that you're doing now is in that kind of sort of macro level of detail uh, around areas, as I say, like that front wing end plate intersection where everyone's had these clever little cutouts, the uh, front and the rear brake ducts with the amount of fins that you can put there, um, the rear wing with that cutaway. You know, all of these little areas here are... um, you know, you're just going to see people playing with those little areas a lot more. Um, now I've been looking at the regulations and looking at the sort of development and trying to, you know, for the new year to think about where are the areas that I would play. Um, not so much with the little details, but with the general shaping of the car. And I think that's what we're going to see next year. Everyone's going to converge. And I hate to say it because um, it, it's it's a lazy way of describing things. We're the more of a Red Bull car. But I think even that needs to be sort of clarified. Red Bull have got a slightly different layout of car. Um, They've got a shorter gearbox and they've pushed the front wheels forward relative to the driver and that cleans the airflow up going into the underfloor. And that's one of of the many little kind of hard to see differences. Um, But Red Bull have also played a lot with the the floor in particular. uh, Everyone is now kind of catching up with. Um, Everyone's also catching up and probably going beyond Red Bull with the side pods and the side pods aren't that important but they do have an effect on the way the floor works and uh, I think Aston Martin kind of found that trick over the winter then everyone else has kind of caught up and then leapfrog Aston with that water slide undercut side pod Um, so I think they're the things that we're going to see I've also played about with how the undercut works and some cheeky body work and the shape of the nose which again isn't a very powerful way of working things but it is something that would just add to all these little things and then there's stuff under the skin like the suspension which is red bull again has got so right working with the aero that you know someone like you would say ferrari and uh, mercedes really haven't got working so there's there's lots of things that people will play with over the next year some will be very hard to spot we may never know um, um but i think most of the the, the exciting stuff sadly is going to be in the little fins and sticky up bits rather than the you know the, the big wholesale wow didn't see that one coming kind of aero change 
Yeah, I think given the the nature of the regulations and how the teams have really been tracing, uh, chasing uh, performance whilst trying to reduce drag, I think it's probably been the concept, particularly at Mercedes, I think is a prime example. I don't think we're expecting to see any of those special little wings appearing on the cars anytime soon, although it would be quite interesting to uh, see someone try that with the, use the Halo device, how they can for that as well. But uh, I think that's definitely a bygone era that's passed us in, in that regard. Um, you mentioned um, the concept changes. Now, this time last year when we did this podcast on 2022, one thing that I think you and I both appreciated was the fact that even though it seemed quite tempting for teams over the winter break to go down the Red Bull route, because um, obviously they had the dominant car by the end of that season, there was a lot of hope in what a lot of teams were saying, i.e. Ferrari, Mercedes in particular, that they were going to continue to evolve their current concepts that they were working with and try to have a better go at it, particularly um, Mercedes, because there was a lot of intrigue over their Hyde Pod concept and whether that would actually have a higher ceiling than what Red Bull and Ferrari produced. Um, but as it were, very, very dramatically after we saw not necessarily Red Bull stretch their legs ahead of the competition, but it was more Aston Martin and also what McLaren were working on in the background, which we saw come to life, particularly in the second half of this season. Ferrari and Mercedes at different points in the season admitted that their concepts were pretty much failures in terms of what they wanted to achieve. And they were going to go down that Red Bull concept, but their own variations of that. So Given the nature and how that all came about, do you find that a little bit disappointing that Ferrari Mercedes came to that realisation probably at the first quarter mark of this season rather than perhaps six or even nine months of last season? Yeah, it, it's strange, isn't it? You know, Mercedes compromised their car so much to get that aero set up uh, with the side pods and the, the way they work the floor um, in particular. And, you know, even in the second year of it, Hamilton saying something fundamental like, I'm not sitting in the right position in the car. I'm pushed too far forwards. That's not, you know, I can't feel the car. Ferrari with an aero concept, which makes some sense. But actually, when you kind of look at the, the bigger picture, what everyone else is doing with the aero to get this floor to work, you can see that they're fundamentally their aero setup just isn't going to work. Uh, and again, they've got hard points in the car, like the, you know, the side impact structures, which really restrict what they can do with the aero. So, yeah, it's strange that they didn't think, you know, in a, a more flexible way is, you know, how are we going to tackle this year? OK, fair enough. You may want to continue to develop an aero concept. But, you know, I think you always have to have in your back pocket the option that you can bail out of that and do something more conventional. And both of them tried to through the year, but really the, you know, the, 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 the structure of the car underneath prevented them from doing so. So with all that being said, um, obviously Ferrari and Mercedes, they've talked at length about changes that they've going to make for the 2024 car. I think it was uh, Fred Vasseur after Ferrari announced mm. their launch date for the first thing for February, the first team so far to have done so. Um, they, they were talking about the car being 95% different to what the, the the previous concept was and Mercedes James Allison obviously returning to the team in a technical um capacity and he's talked at great length about improving the Mercedes what the W15 is going to be like compared to its mm. predecessor because of all those changes um is there a fear that this is already too late for them because even with the sanctions that were imposed on Red Bull for the aero uh, changes owing to the cost cap breach in 21 
you oft, you heard a lot of stories this season about Red Bull abandoning development on this year's car to focus on next year's car a lot earlier to get around that. Do you feel it could already be too late for those two teams to catch Red Bull at this point? Well, I mean, this is the big question, isn't it? I mean, if I could answer that, I'd um, go down to the uh, the betting shop and put a huge amount down uh, on whoever I thought got it right. I yes. mean, if you bet on Max, you probably wouldn't get a lot back at the moment. Um, yeah, I suppose it depends how much money you want to put down in the first place. Um, <laughs> yeah, so let's take each team. Red Bull, yes, they have a huge advantage that even though they had less aero development time because of uh, the fine and their championship finishing position last year than everyone else, but... I think when you look at the development that's happened on that car, you know that they've put a lot of effort into 2024. Um, so that gives them, you know, and again, any team that's winning, it always has that advantage. That's why, again, we see this, you know, you get a run of championships rather than just a single championship um, for a well-organized team. So Red Bull in a really good position. Um, then you've got Ferrari, uh, McLaren, uh, Mercedes. McLaren probably got the least to change they've got to improve the car in every area that's a big job but they don't i don't think they've got any any sort of fundamental concept change that they need to ch play about with on that car they just need to work it a bit harder but as you say ferrari and mercedes have both got two very different concepts in their car um and will change them wholesale which i think is absolutely right um and again a year too late I think both of them cut off development quite early this year. Um, you know, we didn't, once we saw that kind of mid-season, I mean, again, it's it's typified by the side pod, but it goes through the form levels of other things as well. By the time they've done that, they probably developed that in the first third of the year by the time we saw it mid-season. So they've probably put a lot of development in. But then you have the question is, do you change concept that comes with risk? Um, so the risk could be that, you know, it doesn't work again. Um, that it just creates a mediocre car rather than a great car. Because when you're chasing, again, if we use the, we'll copy Red Bull as, a, as an analogy, not that they're doing it, but that's kind of the direction you would say they're going. Um, it's very hard to make them make a car better than Red Bull are already making. So you've always got a chance that the outcome of your development just gives you a car that's just not fast enough. Um, of course, they could absolutely nail it and beat Red Bull. Uh, so we don't know. So it could go either way. And then obviously you've got in-season development next year. Uh, Red Bull will be slightly less hamstrung because of the way that their penalty works. But again, they've won the championship. They've got slightly less aero development time than other teams. So they will be a little bit handicapped. But I think overall, um, it's not that, that uh, much of a problem. Um, I think the biggest issue you've got is if you do mess it up next year, as this budget cap now really starts to bite, and we saw that particularly this year, you can't just develop your way out of a hole um, quickly. You know, McLaren took half a season and they knew even before the season started that they were changing concept. So, you know, it's a big it's a big job for all of them. Well, I think that exactly was what played Ferrari and Mercedes this season. The fact that they couldn't just make a B-spec car whilst they yeah. would have wanted to. And of course, without the cost cap restrictions, they could have easily done it um, within you know six months or a reasonable deadline. But um, it would, just wasn't possible. So it's even more important now, more than it's ever been in F1, to get it right as soon as the car rolls out in testing. Um, yes. And then hopefully, you know, you can develop that in season without having to worry about changing it. I suppose... For Ferrari, Mercedes, and of course, we'll we'll talk briefly about Aston Martin and McLaren in a moment in this regard. But these are the two teams with the most resource in terms of the infrastructure and the personnel. 
Um, you know, obviously cost cap is a bit of a level playing field, but those two teams still enjoy an advantage like Red Bull does to the rest mm-hmm. of the competition until eventually everybody catches up in that regard. Um, in theory, those are the two teams that you should be looking at to say, okay, if anyone's going to challenge Red Bull, despite the changes they're going to have to make to their cars and hope they work, it's those two. Out of those two, who do you think at the moment is the most likely to challenge Red Bull on a week-by-week basis? Because just to break it down, um, Mercedes at the moment seemingly are the slightly better developers than Ferrari in, in that regard. I think history in the last decade or so would probably test to that. Um, but towards the back end of this season, I think if there was one of the two teams that would have been happy with how they understood their current car and where they were going, arguably it probably was Ferrari out of the two. Um, so out of those two, which one do you think is more likely to challenge Red Bull at this point in time? Um, I mean, I, I agree with your your analysis there. It's absolutely right. Ferrari knew what was happening with the car, more or less, um, weren't in a position to change it. Mercedes were still being confused by their car all the way up to, you know, the last races. One minute they looked like they were going to, you know, with that new floor step well ahead of everyone else uh, chasing Red Bull. And then a couple of races, it just didn't work. Um I think in the round, you'd have to say the people with the biggest chance would be Mercedes because they are, you know, such a a diligent engineering-led company. Um, And particularly with James Allison back at the the, the wheel there, I think that was really is a a good direction. Ferrari are still kind of rebuilding under Freddie Vasseur and, um, you know, there's been technical head changes and, you know, all sorts of going-ons at the team. I don't feel confident that they have quite matured enough under that leadership to be the, the team. Now, of course, I'm, I'm not saying that they can't. It could happen. But I think, you know, again, if you've got to look at the, uh, the whole picture, I think Mercedes have got the better chance um, than, than Ferrari do. And I think it's very much those two teams are the only two teams we can pick out at the moment that have got the opportunity to make a big step with their cars because they've got the opportunity to change the concept so much. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of the personnel of Ferrari, I think I think you're probably right in your assessment with that, comparing the two and that obviously Mercedes, they've had a bit of a technical restructure with James Ellison coming in to replace Mike Elliott. Uh, Ferrari, of course, um, other than Fred Vasseur replacing Mattia Bonotto, there hasn't been too much restructure in that technical department, um, with the exclusion, of course, of David Sanchez leaving the team to go to McLaren. So, if anything, if, you know, you could argue Ferrari is technically in a weaker position, technically speaking, although, you know, it depends on how you see it on the inside. But I, I think that's a good point. Um, I would say whilst Ferrari probably have a better understanding at the moment, I think Mercedes have a larger capacity to overcome that. And with that experience of James Allison coming in, that's completely invaluable in terms of challenging Red Bull. He was brought back for a reason um, to hopefully get that right. In terms of McLaren and Aston Martin now, very different season, polarizing seasons. If you combine mm. the two of the first half of Aston Martin and the second half of McLaren, you've almost got a constructors championship challenger for Red Bull in that regard. And I say almost because of how brilliant Max was and how brilliant Red Bull were. Um, but it would have been fun to see. Looking at the two of them, I would say that McLaren, as you rightly pointed out, have a, a better car concept to work with, have less to change. But they are still going through that technical restructure that's being led by Andrea Stella. Of course, they've got so many new personnel in. We already mentioned David Sanchez coming in to that technical restructure soon. With the facility restrictions as well that McLaren are currently having to deal with, what chances do you think that McLaren have of trying to 
challenge Red Bull next season because they did look like the best challenges at the back end of 2023. But there were some weekends where they did look like they struggled and fell back into that best of the rest battle. Yeah, I mean, I think McLaren still have quite a tricky car to handle. It's the way that they've designed it and um, both drivers sort of struggle a little bit with it. Um, I think they have made the most progress. I think they've made all the right directional changes and sort of philosophy changes to the car. Um, and you've got, you know, um, a slowly growing technical team there that seem to be the right sort of people. Although I have to say I was critical of some of the changes they made um, between seasons. Um so, yeah, I think you know, McLaren have got the potential to be, you know, one of the top four teams next year on a consistent basis. And we're talking about wins and challenging uh, Red Bull. Um, Aston Martin, I think that's a bigger question mark. I, you know, I'm forever dumbfounded by the, their ability to make good ideas and bad ideas and progress and step backwards. Um, and I think, you know, they're, they're, I'm concerned about the sort of the management direction that's going on there. Um, their inability to, to adapt this year, um, their car, you know, with too much drag um, and keep bringing updates to it is a big issue. And I'm, you know, again, there's no reason they couldn't do everything right over the winter again, but I'm, I'm probably less confident that they've got the ability and you know internal cohesion to do so. So I, I think it's very much, you know, McLaren's opportunity to make that proper step up than it would be Aston's over the winter. Yeah, I agree with that. I did get the impression with Aston Martin that after their development over the winter and impressed so many people to the point where they were at the time Red Bull's biggest challenges week by week. And mm. then because of how dramatically it fell away, it was almost a bit of a kick in the teeth, really, because for me as a fan watching that, I'm thinking, ah, just when we were expecting Aston Martin to make that huge boom, they've arrived. They've finally got, they've obviously had the financial backing. They've obviously mm. improved their, um, you know, organizational structure at Silverstone at Brackley. And, you know, it, it's ongoing. It's not finished yet. There's still a way to go with the new factory and then the simulator and everything else that comes with it. But I really had hope they were able to sustain their development in season. There were encouraging signs towards the back end of last season, just gone. Um, the performance was better. I don't necessarily think that was down to, um, you know, development. I think they themselves mm. admitted they were experimenting and then they found something that worked <laughs> akin to what they had earlier in the season and just rolled with that. So for them, it's pretty much a case of not just turning up on the first day with a strong car, making sure it stays a strong car throughout the course of the season. And then we can start talking about Aston Martin more seriously. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, it'd be interesting to see how it shakes out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a quick one on 2026 before we uh, wrap things up, Scarbs. Um, Nicholas Tombas is the, the director for single-seater racing at F1 and the FIA. Um, he had recently released some details regarding some of the aero changes that are being proposed for 2026. And the motion seems to be focused, or the concept seems to be focused on making the cars more nimble, um, active aero dynamics as well that we touched on briefly last season. Looking at some of the details that they talked about, uh, the car's been a bit shorter, a bit narrower, uh, the wheelbase as well. Um, obviously, the engine changes that have already been agreed. Do you think they're going in the right direction to make the cars more exciting and to watch and better racing? Or do you think they could go further with those reg chains? Because from an amateur perspective, like myself, I thought they probably could have gone a bit further. I was hoping for a bit more on the aero front. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I do agree with the direction they're going. Um, you know. Um, smaller lighter cars 
pushing the efficiency story uh, much more now with the you know, changing the engineer regu regulations and the uh, adaptive aero, which is going to be fascinating. Um, I do think they could have gone further, um, in both the powertrain and with the, the chassis and the aero. Um, I think what frustrates me every time I read about um, you know, initial ideas for regulations and then what's finally agreed is that it's the team seem to have too much influence. Um, you know, what were good ideas um, get watered down because one team thinks that another team may have you know, a technical advantage. So we were talking about um, uh, a front motor generator hybrid unit, which would gather a huge amount of energy under braking. It'd be fantastic for Formula One. Um, that wasn't brought in because everyone was you know, worried that Audi would have an advantage. Um, Audi didn't want the MGUH because everyone else has an advantage. It's like, this is like asking footballers to decide, do we have the offside rule or not? It's not that I know what an offside rule is, I, I hasten to add, but you know, the people participating in the sport shouldn't have too big a say in what the regulations are. You know, they're, they're entrance, they're not part of the um you know the deciding on what happens with this so i'm a bit frustrated the cars could be a lot shorter um i think there is a limit for what we could do with the weight but that does equally depend on what you're doing particularly with the power unit now um and unfortunately that will get a little bit heavier so it's some you know somewhat offset by the um weight savings in other areas um so, yeah, so I think we could do more. I think the aero concepts that we start to see come out, I think it was what the German magazine Auto Motor and Sport had some initial renders and they're going. Oh, we went from before 2022 to a very powerful outwash aero concept. All the air was being thrown out sideways from the car uh, to get it to work better. Um, 2022 came in and the car had to have much less outwash, but still there was an outwash concept to the, all the various aero surfaces. 2026, it's going to be different. It's almost going back to the kind of the early 2000s with the front wing being narrower and all the airflow passing very tightly in between the wheels and around the bodywork, what you describe as an inwash concept. That makes lots of sense um, from uh, an aerodynamic point of view in terms of reducing the weight for the car behind. Uh, it re reduce the aero performance of the car somewhat as well, which I think is a good thing. You know, you can have too much downforce, you could argue. Um, and then you've got these really clever power units, uh, which will use a huge amount less fuel, a lot less starting weight on the cars because of the reduced fuel load. Um, and the inefficiency that eventually comes in when you run out of hybrid power will be offset by the active aero. So just as your battery starts to empty on the straight, you can flatten your rear wing and your front wings, which would be literally like Venetian blinds, just flatten completely out, even beyond what you see with DRS, and just shed all the drag from the car. And it's gonna be fantastic. And they're gonna be great to look at. There's gonna be a lot more visual excitement because of the shape of the bodywork, but then the bodywork changing shape along the straights as well. So yeah, um, I think we're in a good direction. Uh, but F1 just needs to keep pushing harder and harder all the time to just top these things up. Yeah, I think the most interesting part of all of that from how you described it, which is actually getting me a little excited for 2026, is how much more input the drivers are going to have to produce uh, in terms to 
find the perfect balance for these regulations. It really, more so perhaps than we've seen in the past, it could come down to the driver, not just because of the electronics or stuff they see on the steering wheel, but we are going to see so much more of that. We may even see a return to um, regular driver coaching in race. I know we still have that now, but uh, Mm. I remember there was a time where they outlawed that altogether. And we used to get those hilarious messages on the broadcast of a driver asking for instructions. And they say, sorry, I can't help you with that one. Yes, no, um, I, I think we're going to see a lot more interaction between the, the driver and the car and settings. So, you know, at the moment we've got really just hybrid settings and differential and brake settings that you'll play about with, but you'll have aero strategies that you'll be able to start to play with a different power unit strategies. Um, it may become a bit more complicated, um, which may be tough for some of, you know, for some of the newer people and some of the people that maybe are a bit more just a, uh, a casual viewer, but I, I, I think it's going to make for, some quite compulsive viewing for those of us that really are into this sport and you know different teams different drivers will kind of as we were speaking about earlier about how they adapt to you know changing handling of the car adapting to how you race and you get performance out of these new cars and um i think it will be another one of those step changes where okay maybe red bull can continue to win over the next two years it doesn't mean that they are going to nail it with the new regulations. Um, so we could see a change in dominance again. So I, you know, I think it's, again, Formula One seems to be approaching this in such a clever way that I've got a lot of confidence, even though if they don't go quite as far as I'd like, that the product that will end up with will be fascinating and will be you know, great for watching. No, it's brilliant stuff. Um, I think final question before we end things, and it's going to be a quick one. Um, we saw... Uh, well, we haven't got the official numbers, but I think it's around over 840 overtakes this year, and that's not including overtakes on, off the grid, for example. Charles Leclerc's overtake on Sergio Perez on the last lap at the Vegas GP was voted as the overtake of the year. Um, do you have a favourite overtake from this season, Scarbs? Do you know what? No, no, I don't. Um, and I've, I've oddly, um, as much as I can remember the shape of front wing end plates from 30 years ago and things like that, I've, I've got a very bad memory for what's and in races um i can remember a few situations where drivers have gone around the outside and i think that might be vegas which again kind of detracts from the ability of some of the overtaking um but no i i can't pull out a single overtake that i really remember um but i just you know from what's left of my, my, my memory in my brain i know there was just lots of it well, I'll put one in your head for now um, that I was disappointed didn't get the recognition it deserved. Magnuson's overtake on a sergeant at Monaco. Um, okay, which, I'll have to go YouTube that one. You have to go. I don't, I don't remember that at all. But yeah, I mean, there was there was so much great uh, action on track this year. Um, it would be, you know, I might go back and actually have a look at some of those compilations and just just remind myself just how good it was this year. And I think we'll yeah, have the same yeah. situation next year. I hope so. I mean, admittedly, from a competitive standpoint, I, I do hope the, the rivals, if you like, or the chasing pack are able to, uh, at the very least, give Red Bull a much harder job than they did this season collectively. Yeah. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. But um, as, as I mentioned already, guys, if you want to follow more great content from Scarbs, you can check out his social media on Twitter in particular. It's at Scarbs Tech. Plenty of great stuff on there. And of course, plenty more uh christmas related puns and anecdotes about drivers drawings i'm sure there'll be plenty more to come i've been enjoying those as well so uh make sure to check that out for that and also great tech insight from scarbs as well um 
but that's all we've got for uh, this one, guys. Um, of course, I know, I know you keep asking for the predictions reactions episode that is coming. We just got to get all of us together to do that one. That should be an interesting one to do before Christmas is coming. But until then, guys, thanks for tuning in as always. Please stay safe and we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And as always, remember, if you're not first, you'll probably be DNF1. Take care. Podcast Network.